This evening's readings are three excerpts taken from Mark chapters 15 and 16, and that starts on page 1022 in your church Bibles. So starting at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then moving on to verses 25 to 39. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by held insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. And then lastly, verse 16, one to, uh, chapter 16, verse 1 to 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. 
As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. As we come to this particular passage, perhaps as much as or more than any, it seems right to pray as we begin. Father, we tread on holy ground tonight. And we pray this in your mercy, you will open the scriptures to us in a way that is transforming for the way that we see you, for the way that we see ourselves, and for the way that we see this broken world. Speak to us, we pray. And in speaking, grant us a deeper joy than we have known at any Christmas before, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Ben is right to say that um, Mark uh, 15 does not feel like the most Christmassy passage you're ever going to read. But it does seem appropriate just to point out that every single one of the four Gospels begins with an echo of that Friday afternoon. So Matthew's Gospel uh, introduces us to Jesus uh, and um, one of the most famous stories that's in Matthew's Gospel that we perhaps find hard to squeeze into the Christmas narrative uh, as we tell it culturally is Herod's slaughter of the innocents. One of the very first things that happens in Jesus' life is he becomes a refugee. He has to flee from Israel to Egypt. Oh, the irony. We've been reading Exodus earlier in the year. Uh, God setting his people free from Egypt, uh, taking them to Israel, to the promised land. Well, here you have the son of God himself having to flee Israel uh, and go to Egypt because the king is seeking his blood and is indiscriminately killing boys of around his age in order to wipe out any possible alternative claim to kingship. In Luke's gospel, which is perhaps the most familiar from our sort of nativity stories, um, Mary is told by prophecy as she takes Jesus to the temple, a sword will pierce your own heart too. Uh, as John begins his gospel, speaking of the light of the world uh, that is coming into the world, he says the light uh, that gives light to the world was coming into the world and the, darkness, the, dark, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and says he came to that which was his own but his own did not receive him. Mark, well Mark doesn't have a Christmas story Mark, as you might remember if you were here at the beginning of the term, goes straight in. Mark's incredibly punchy. He goes straight in uh, to the action. But what do we see at the beginning of Mark's gospel? Just turn back with me to page 1002. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is going to be important for us this evening. At the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, that is God's promised king... 
the Son of God. What happens at the beginning uh, of Jesus' uh, life as Mark tells the story? Uh, well, we get his baptism and a voice from heaven, verse 11, saying, you're my son whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. And then immediately, Jesus goes out into the wilderness essentially to do battle with Satan, to confront the deepest powers of darkness at work in this dark world. And so not only is he tempted by Satan, but he's there with the wild animals, symbols of the chaos and danger of this broken world. And then Jesus' ministry begins when? When John the Baptist is put in prison, verse 14. And John is put in prison, and then Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then the first uh, miraculous thing that Jesus does, the first way that Jesus demonstrates his identity is in the synagogue at Capernaum, a story that begins in verse uh, 21, but really has its highlight from verse 23 on. It was just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly, come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. All of the gospels present to us a Jesus who right from the beginning has come into this dark world to do battle with the powers of darkness and utterly to defeat them. And so, as we come to the end of Mark's gospel, it's not by accident that we find ourselves right in the midst of that darkness. Verse 33 At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Mark begins, he introduces us to Jesus at his baptism. A voice comes from heaven and says, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. From that shining afternoon, we find ourselves on the darkest afternoon in the history of the human race, with Jesus crying out to that God, to his Father, who is the first person in the gospel to testify to Jesus' identity as his son, and Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? It is the most complete picture of dereliction, of desolation, and desertion. Jesus on the cross, experiencing the deepest darkness, the worst horrors imaginable. His friends have abandoned him, He feels that God even has forsaken him. The light of the world seems to be completely extinguished. This is the climax of Mark's gospel. This is the moment 
of battle. At last, Jesus does battle with the powers of darkness. And he experiences the very worst that they have to throw at him. Look, here's the thing. One of the great symbols of Christmas is light shining in the darkness. And so often, too often, we have allowed ourselves simply to focus on the light and forget the darkness that Jesus came to destroy. And so Christmas becomes for us not the moment at which God deals with our deepest problem, but a a means of distracting ourselves from the reality of it. We hang up our pretty shining lights, our baubles and our trinkets. We rejoice, we eat and we drink. And rightly so, because this is the best news that there has ever been. And yet if we're not careful, Christmas distracts us from what Christmas is all about. The defeat and the destruction of the powers of darkness. And Mark wants to show us in this terrible moment why there is cause for such joy at Christmas. And he does it using a a whole series of ironies, a whole series of things that where the world seems to be upside down. Nothing seems right. And yet through the very thing that seems so wrong, Mark is pointing to us to, pointing us to a deeper and more glorious reality. So in chapter 15, it starts with Jesus' trial before Pilate. Uh, he's been tried already before the Sanhedrin. The high priest has uh, cross-examined him. Jesus has confessed that he is the son of God and the high priest has said, well, that's blasphemy. There's your first irony. Jesus is the only person at his first trial telling the truth. There are lots of people, uh, lots of lying witnesses there in the passage that we looked at last week. Jesus can't be convicted on the basis of any of their false testimony because it's so transparently false. It's only when he tells the truth that his fate is sealed. And now here he is again on trial in front of no longer the Jewish authorities but the Roman authorities. And Pilate cross-examines him and really cannot find a problem. Uh, And Pilate looks for a way out. Verse six. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who'd committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, said Pilate? Knowing it was out of self-interest, the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. And so, verse 15, Pilate released Barabbas to them and had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. On the one hand, you have a guilty man, a murderer. On the other hand, you have a man that Pilate can't find guilty of anything. And yet the murderer goes free. And the innocent man is flogged and sentenced to death. 
So there's your first uh, irony in this passage. The innocent is punished in the place of the guilty. Then in verses uh, 16 to 20, Jesus is mocked for being precisely who he is. The king is mocked by being treated as a king. Verse 17, they put a purple robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on him and they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. All the midst of that time spitting on him and striking him. And then falling on their knees and paying homage to him. They mock him as king. Little knowing that the one they mock truly is king. That one day, the one they're kneeling in front of to mock him, one day they will kneel before him as their king, as the creator of everything. The one who is king is mocked as king. And then the one who is savior is mocked. So there he is hanging underneath this sign, verse 26, that reads, the king of the Jews, which is both his charge and his title. The people mock him. The passers-by mock him, just as the Roman soldiers have mocked him uh, as the king of the Jews. Uh, So the high priests and uh, the, the teachers of the law come past and they mock him. So they say, verse 30, come down from the cross and save yourself. The chief priests and the teachers of the law say, he saved others, but he can't save himself. It's ironic because they're mocking him, but they're actually preaching the gospel. They're actually telling the truth. It is in not saving himself that he saves others. It's in his apparent weakness, his apparent failure, that he succeeds. And say the one who is, then verses 33 to 34, truly the son of God, truly the sinless one, it is he who is covered in darkness deserted by his father. And then in verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus Jesus breathed his last. Now Mark is showing us through all those ironies what is really going on here, but then in verse 38, he introduces us to two witnesses. The curtain in the temple and the centurion. We'll take the centurion first. The centurion, presumably one of those who had been beating and mocking and spitting, calling Jesus king of the Jews, but knowing full well, so he thought, that Jesus was nothing of the sort, he becomes the first person to confess the true identity of Jesus. So far in Mark's gospel, Mark's introduced chapter one, verse one, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So far, no one has from the heart 
confess Jesus as Son of God. Peter's cottoned on to the fact that he's the Messiah. God has announced from heaven, you're my son. Twice in Mark's gospel, demons have recognized that he is the son of God uh, and said, if you come to destroy us. But only now, as Jesus dies, is he recognized by a human as the son of God. The first person to acknowledge Jesus' true identity in Mark's gospel, the first human being to do so, is the soldier who only hours earlier was mocking and beating him. There's something about the death of Jesus that establishes his identity. Something about his defeat that establishes his victory. And the curtain testifies to just what that victory really is. Now, let me tell you about that curtain in the temple. It's very striking that, that, of course, the centurion wouldn't have seen it. It was some distance away and hidden away in the holy place in the temple. But hanging between the holy place and the most holy place in the temple is a curtain. And woven into that curtain are terrifying angels, cherubim, that guard the way into the presence of God. Now, the thing about those cherubim is we meet them right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve have uh, rebelled against God, when they've made God their enemy uh, and are exiled from Eden, exiled from uh, the place of blessing, exiled from the presence of God, they're, they're sent east of Eden and God sets up two things to prevent human beings from entering into that place ever again. There's a sword, a flaming sword flashing this way and that, and there are cherubim, these terrifying angels guarding the way back to Eden. Uh, And the temple, and before it the tabernacle, are a, a sort of model of that reality that the place of God is cut off, that human beings cannot enter into God's presence and they cannot enter again into Eden, into the, the place of blessing, into their home. The temple stands as a way of God being present with his people, but also as a way of God being absent from his people. And it stands witness to the fact that every human being who has ever been born has been born into exile, east of Eden, far from home, with no way back. But then Mark shows us, as Jesus dies, that curtain with those cherubim symbolizing that the way to Eden is blocked off, seemingly forever, those cherubim are moved aside. The curtain is ripped from top to bottom, showing that God did it. There's a way home. Jesus, in his exile, ends our exile. And that exile is symbolic of the consequence of turning from God, which is death. And Jesus, in his death, 
ends the reign of terror that death has held over the human race right from the start, right from that moment when Adam reached out and took the fruit that was not his to take, making God his enemy, making himself an exile from his home in Eden. making himself a dead man walking. And that witness, that temple curtain, points to just how huge what Jesus did really was. He opened up the way home. He confronted the powers of darkness. He went down deeper into darkness than any human being had ever gone before and conquered it. He broke it. It's almost like Jesus is a sort of spanner thrown into the works of death that shatters all its hideous cogs and gears and stops it from crushing the human race. And so when we get to chapter 16, what we see is that Jesus really has broken death. What an extraordinary thought. But when Mary and Mary and Salome come to anoint his body, it's not there. And there's Mark's third witness to what that appalling afternoon has really achieved. The third witness is the empty tomb. He is not here, says the angel. He is risen. And so Mark ends his gospel with irony both in the fact that they go to the tomb and they find someone in the tomb, but it's not the person who should be in the tomb and, uh, uh, and all of that. But then verse eight, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. What a way to end. It leaves you hanging. It leaves you scratching your head and confused. And there are all kinds of uh, solutions that people have come up with, uh, suggesting that maybe the real ending of Mark's gospel is hidden there at the end of Matthew, or uh, that uh, somehow it's lost forever. But I remain convinced that Mark has done this deliberately for two reasons. The first is this, that if you go back to Genesis 18, verse 15, and Genesis 45, verse 3, you find two occasions on which people do not speak because they were afraid. Uh, And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of Genesis, uses exactly the same phrase that Mark uses as his last two words in his gospel, for they were afraid. It's two words in Greek. And on those two occasions, the first is when Sarah has heard that she, at 90 years of age, is going to give birth to the son of God's promise. There is a son that God is going to give and it is utterly unbelievable that it could be true. 
And confronted with that, she is struck silent because she is afraid. In Genesis 45, Joseph reveals to his brothers that the person that has saved their lives, that's provided them with grain in a famine, is actually Joseph, their brother, who they thought was dead. They had planned his murder, uh, decided to sell him into slavery instead, but they never thought they would see him again. And then suddenly Joseph says to them, it's me, guys. And they do not speak because they're afraid. Uh, And so I think what Mark is doing for us is saying, look, this is one of those moments when the news is too good to really cope with. When the women first encounter the empty tomb, the news that Jesus has risen, the news that he's gone on ahead of his disciples into Galilee, that he's not lost them forever. In fact, all is not lost, all is won. Their first response is silence. Mark's not giving you the fairy tale happy ending. He's giving it to you real and raw. This news is too good for you to easily assimilate it into your view of the world. This is terrifyingly good news. And the first people who heard it were struck completely dumb. That's the first reason I think Mark ends like this. And the second is that what he wants you to do is go back and read and see if you can make sense of it all now. Read chapter 1, knowing what you've read in chapter 16, in chapters 15 and 16. And the whole ministry of Jesus swims into new perspective. Jesus has come into a dark world, and he has dealt with the powers of darkness. Jesus has come into a dying world, and he has dealt with the power of death. Jesus has come into a sinful world, And he has borne the consequences of sin. And now the way to Eden is open. Now there is a way home. And God longs to welcome you as his children. In chapter 15, I think the person who understands all of this best, at least in one sense, is Barabbas. What do you think that first Good Friday must have been like for Barabbas? Imagine yourself in his shoes. There he is in his cell, the water dripping in the corner, the rats scurrying around. Perhaps in complete darkness, perhaps a a ray of light breaking through the corner of a door or something like that. You're a murderer. You're an insurrectionist. You're bang to rights. Today you hang. And as you sit there waiting for the executioner to rattle his keys in the door, what must you be thinking? This is it. This is the end of the story. Footsteps in the corridor the jangle of keys, the turning of a lock, 
a rough voice. Barabbas, out you come. On trembling knees, you stagger through the doorway, out of the darkness into the blinding sunlight of the courtyard. There, in the corner, is a pile of crosses. You stumble towards it. And the guard says, no, they're not for you. Yours is taken. Get out of here. You're free. That is the story of the cross. Jesus took Barabbas' cross. He took, literally took, Barabbas' punishment. Barabbas was free. Astonishingly, that is what Jesus has done for you and for me. He took what was rightfully mine so that I could have what is rightfully his. He took my darkness, my shame, my death so that I could enjoy his life, his peace, and his joy. That is why Christmas is such extraordinary news. Light has come into a dark world, not to distract us from the horrors of darkness, but to destroy them. Christmas is not distraction, it is destruction. Destruction of the power of evil. Light has dawned that never will fade. And because of the death of Jesus, life is mine and life is yours forever. There is a way home. There is no bar now to re-entering Eden. And all who come to Christ will enter there. The meal that we're about to share together speaks to us in very real and very physical terms of that reality. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for our life. It's almost too good to be true, isn't it? But stunningly, it is true. Hooray. Right.